We're going to read the Bible now, and we're going to be reading from Acts 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it, and exclaimed, Peter is at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, They said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him, and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace, because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Hey everyone, I hope you've had a fantastic weekend. We're about to look at a brilliant part of the Bible. 
Uh, and Joe mentioned in her prayer the idea that we're going to actually have question time today. So if you have questions coming out of today's passage, feel free to jot them into the discussion part on the YouTubes. You can tell I don't do the YouTubes very much. The chatty sidebar-y thing, put a question in there. I, I'm, I may be bad at technology, but I'm all right at the Bible, so we might be able to get to questions later on. Now, um, we are living in strange times, aren't we? And one of the very strangest things about COVID has been our government starting to tell us what to do. When you think about it, here in Australia, Christians and the government don't, we just don't bump into each other very much, do we? We're over here doing our thing as Christians, the government's over there doing their thing as Christians, and we have so much freedom and so much peace that we don't really ever rub up against each other much. But during COVID-19, the government has actually told us to stop doing what we normally do. At the moment, we're not allowed to meet in groups bigger than a 100. And a while ago, our government told us that we weren't allowed to meet at all. And look, I can't remember any time in, certainly for as long as I've been a Christian for 35 odd years, I can't remember a time when our government has so controlled what Christians should do. And look, for, for some Christians, that's become an intolerable situation. So John MacArthur Jr. is a, a really influential pastor in America, and his church has started meeting in defiance of their government. He said, Grace Community Church has always stood immovably on those biblical principles. As his people, we're subject to his will and commands as revealed in Scripture. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear command. And the clear command that he's talking about there, just for context, is Hebrews chapter 10, which says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the Bible tells us to not give up meeting together, but to encourage each other, spur one another on. And John MacArthur Jr. said, we cannot and we will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational gatherings. Now, what do you think? Is he right? Do you agree with him? Should we be meeting together despite what our government says? What should Christians do when governments tell us to disobey God? Should we seek to overthrow evil governments? Or should we be praying for a Christian government? Should we be praying that Canberra is full of Christians? Imagine that. Imagine if we had Christians at all levels of government. They could pass laws that are in line with the Bible. Australia could become a Christian country. Maybe they could even give us money to buy a building with. Now you're on board with the idea, aren't you? What do Christians think about civil authorities? Well, look, Acts chapter 12 kind of helps us to think through this because in Acts chapter 12, Christians bump pretty heavily against the civil authority of their day, Herod. But before we meet Herod, what we've seen so far all the way through the book of Acts is the big theme of the book of Acts is Jesus ruling the world from heaven. Remember Acts chapter 1, we saw Jesus ascend to God's right hand and he poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and he sent his messengers from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. That's what the book of Acts is about. But for the past two weeks, 
what we've seen is Jesus overcoming obstacles to his kingdom. So the first obstacle, the first barrier, if you like, to Jesus' kingdom was religious opposition through Saul. Remember Saul? Saul was there. He was overseeing the stoning of Peter, and then he went to Damascus in order to put Christians in prison there. Saul was this great barrier to Jesus' kingdom growing. And what did Jesus do? He turned his greatest enemy into his greatest servant. He turned Saul from being persecutor to apostle, and the barrier was removed. After that, we saw Jesus dealing with a second barrier, which was the racial barrier. So Jesus came to die for both Jew and Gentile, for everyone. But there was this ages-long divide between Jews, who were God's people, and Gentiles, who were the idol worshippers, that meant how was the gospel going to cross that barrier? And so Jesus sends Peter to Cornelius. The Holy Spirit is poured out, just like it had been poured out in Acts chapter 2. And again, the barrier to Jesus' kingdom is removed. And today we hit a third barrier to Jesus' kingdom. This time it's evil human authority. Have a look in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with the approval of the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, intending him to be guarded, uh, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So Peter's put in prison by this King Herod. And if you're particularly sharp, you might be thinking to yourself, well, hang on a minute. Wasn't Herod the king way back when Jesus was born? How old is this guy by now? And look, we're we're actually dealing with a different Herod. You see, there was actually a whole bunch of kings named Herod. Uh, You can see up on the screen up there at the top there is Herod the Great. He's the kind of the patriarch of the family. He was the one who killed the little boys in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And then the next generation is Herod Antipas. He was Herod's son. He was the one who handed John the Baptist over to be killed, and he handed Jesus over to be killed. And today we meet the next generation of Herod's, Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. But look, he's just a chip off the old Herod block. He's exactly the same as the others before him. He kills James and he imprisons Peter. But the thing is, Herod's motives aren't religious like Saul's were. Herod's not opposed to Jesus because of some kind of religious fervor. It's not because he loves God. No, in verse 3, he's a politician. And he can see that opposing Christianity actually gets him in with the Jews. He is your classic evil authority. And yet here's the thing. God is still the one who put him there. So take a look at what Paul says about human authorities in Romans chapter 13. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. You see, it turns out that God is the one who made all of the Herod's kings, even though they were a thoroughly evil family. In verse 4 of Romans there, Paul even calls Herod God's servant. 
See, we're tempted to think that there are two different sorts of governments. There are the good ones that God put there, and then there are the evil ones probably put there by Satan. And the good ones, well, they're all democratic. Countries like us and and the United Kingdom, and we might have said the USA before, but now we're not too sure. And the evil ones, the satanic ones, well, they're places like North Korea, the totalitarian regimes and so on. But the thing is, Paul says, no, no, no. Every government is put there by God, whether they're good or evil. Herod, Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, they're all put there by God. There is no authority except that which God has established. And so God calls us to obey the governments that he has set up, or he'll judge us. Romans 13 verse 2, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. You see, if you rebel against the authority that God has put there, you will bring God's judgment upon you. Christians are law-abiding citizens. Even when our governments are evil, we still obey them because evil or good, God still put them there. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we pray for our governments. Now look, in Australia, we really, really need to hear this, don't we? Because here in Australia, we have this deeply ingrained disrespect for our authorities, don't we? We don't want to obey them. So imagine if you were driving with your friend in the car and we said to them, oh, look, I really think you should keep to the speed limit because that's the law. They'd laugh in your face, wouldn't they? Imagine if you said at work, I'm all for paying taxes. After all, the government really wants me to. They would laugh in your face, wouldn't they? Because in Australia, we have this deeply ingrained disrespect for the law. Mind you, COVID's changed us a little bit, hasn't it? See, during this COVID-19 season, a lot of Australians have seen just how important it is that we limit our personal freedom and become obedient to the government because, well, people are actually dying. It's important that we limit freedom and obey the government. And in fact, now it's some Christians who are saying that we should disobey the government. There are people like John MacArthur Jr. And look, there are actually times, there are times, when Christians should disobey our government. When the authorities tell us that we should disobey God, well, then our duty is clear. We disobey the authorities and we obey God. Peter said that really clearly back in Acts chapter 4, didn't he? Do you remember that? When uh, Peter and John were called in before the Sanhedrin, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. You see, when the authorities force us to choose between them and God, our decision is clear. Obey God, disobey the authorities. And yet, even as we do that, even as we disobey, it's possible to submit. You can submit to someone even as you disobey them by saying, I will not follow your rule, but I will accept your punishment. That's how the apostles do it, isn't it? 
They disobey the authorities. They preach the gospel. But when they're accused, they don't stage a rebellion. They don't, they don't stage a coup. They don't even lie. No, they admit it. They confess and they accept their punishment. That is, they obey the authorities as far as they can. And at the point where they must disobey, that's what they do. And so if our government was to outlaw gospel preaching in Australia, if it made it illegal for us to tell people about Jesus, I would disobey. Because Jesus commands us to preach his gospel. We'll take the gospel out to the nations. But when I was caught, I wouldn't lie about it. I'd confess and I'd go to jail and I'd keep preaching the gospel there. Because you see, Christians will obey our government as far as we can. And look, in this COVID-19 situation, it is tricky to work out precisely what to do, isn't it? Particularly because Australia and the United States are slightly different places. But God's word does call us to keep meeting together in Hebrews chapter 10, and our government is telling us to not do that. So what do we do? Well, look, here's how I've approached this situation. Here in Australia, our government is not actually telling us to disobey God. Because they haven't forbidden us from meeting together. They're just stopping us from having meetings that are bigger than 100. We can still meet in homes for church. We can still meet at things like youth and rush and women's growth group. We're still meeting in our ministry teams. We're still meeting in our growth groups. We can still meet one-to-one. We can go to parks. We can meet online. We can obey Hebrews 10. The government is not forcing us to disobey Scripture at all. And in fact... They're not stopping us from meeting because they're opposed to the gospel. This is not about persecution. That's just melodramatic nonsense. If you think this is about persecution, it is not. What this is about is protecting our community. What they're calling us to do is to sacrifice one small part of our freedom, to limit our freedom in one small way for the sake of the people around us. And look, if there is any group of people in the world who ought to understand sacrificing our freedom for the benefit of others, it's the people of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who was crucified for the sake of the world. See, this is our chance for us to be a really different group of people. While the rest of the world is whinging and complaining and fault-finding, and moaning, and disobeying authorities, now is our chance to shine, to be thankful to our God, and to be a force for good. Obey the government. Do as you are told. Love the people around us. And in fact, if you want to do anything outrageous during this time, use it as your chance to point to Jesus, who really did make a massive sacrifice for the benefit of others. See, Christians are people who obey the authorities as far as we possibly can, even the evil ones. But, you know, of course, that raises a question, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be better if we just had a Christian government? I mean, wouldn't it be better to have a government that's full of Christians who could pass Christian laws? Maybe we'd be able to make Australia a a Christian country. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Well, look, as nice as it might sound, it's not actually God's plan for government. God's plan is not for a Christian democracy in Australia or in any other country, so far as I can tell. 
No, God's plan is for a monarchy. But it's a monarchy which has Jesus as the king. That's been the big point of the book of Acts, hasn't it? That Jesus is the risen Messiah. Remember Peter's speech back in Acts chapter 2. Peter said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There is God's plan for government. God has raised Jesus from the dead, and right at this moment, he is sitting at God's right hand in heaven as Lord and Messiah. And one day, when Jesus returns, all of his enemies are going to be made footstools for him to put his feet on. That's God's plan for government. God's plan is not for Christian governments of Christian countries. I mean, Scott Morrison being a Christian right now is not how God plans for his kingdom to grow. It's lovely. I'm glad for his sake that Scott Morrison is going to heaven and I'm hoping that he can have some kind of influence in terms of gospel preaching in our country. But God's plan is for Jesus to rule the universe. When Jesus returns, he will be prime minister, president, sheikh. He'll be all king, all of them all rolled into one and everyone else will bow before him. Now, look, that doesn't mean that it's a bad idea to have Christians in politics. It doesn't mean Christians should stay out of politics altogether. No, if you're, Christians in politics can do some good. They can limit evil. They can be a positive influence. It's just not how God's kingdom is going to come. God's kingdom will come through Jesus' rule, which is exactly what we see in the rest of Acts chapter 12. We see Jesus overruling Herod and removing Herod as a barrier. So look what happens to Peter in verse 6 following. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Isn't that a fantastic story? Peter's chained between two guards. There are two other guards at the door. Now, this is a situation not even Houdini can get out of this. He is absolutely confined here. And yet Peter just gets up and he walks away as if none of it was even there. The chains just fall off his wrist. The guard, the gate opens all by itself. It's so extraordinary that Peter doesn't even think any of it's real in verse 9. He thinks he's having a vision. And who is the one who thwarts Herod's plans here? Well, look, it's easy to kind of, for your focus, to go in on the angel, isn't it? Because angels are kind of amazing and they're, and they're a bit weird, but 
But it's Jesus who rescues Peter, isn't it? In verse 7, it's an angel of the Lord. In verse 11, Peter says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. You see, Jesus is the one who rescues Peter from Herod's clutches. This is Jesus overcoming the evil political authority, overcoming this barrier to his kingdom growing. Just like he overcame the religious barrier in Saul, just like he overcame the racial barrier through Peter going to Cornelius. What we're seeing here in Acts 12 is Jesus overruling from heaven and ensuring that his gospel can go out to the world. I love the next part of the story because it's just so very human. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept on insisting that it was so, they said, oh, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished, and Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. I love how very human that is, because Rhoda goes to the door, and she hears Peter's voice, and she's so overjoyed that she actually forgets to open the door and let him in. Rhoda runs inside, and Peter's actually left out in the cold. And isn't that exactly what would happen? This is what my kids do to every visitor who ever comes to our house. I love the fact that the Bible gives us this little human detail that doesn't add anything necessarily to the story, except to show you that what we're dealing with here is real human events and real human people. You might be wondering, What's that bit about Peter's angel in verse 15? That's an odd bit. It must be his angel. Well, look, at the time, there was this belief that people had that everyone has, or that Christians have, a guardian angel who would roam around the world and and could be mistaken for you. It's not so much a biblical idea as a cultural idea. Although Jesus does say something that's just it's a little bit tantalizing. In Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus is talking about children and he says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So these children have angels in heaven. Maybe Christians do have angels that are assigned to us. I can't see how you get from that, though, to the idea of your angel impersonating you. I kind of feel sorry for any angel that's going to go around looking like I look like. And to be honest, I'm not sure I'd want to get that excited about the idea of a guardian angel. Because it is kind of exciting about the idea of a guardian angel, isn't it? To to think that I might have an angel who's like my bodyguard, an angel who, he could be my friend when I'm feeling lonely. I could ask the angel to help me. I could ask the angel to protect me. Here's the thing. You don't need a guardian angel, to protect you. You have Jesus. Isn't the big point of Acts chapter 12 that it was Jesus who rescued Peter? In verse 17, Peter says Jesus is the one who brought him out of prison. That's been the big point of all of the book of Acts, that Jesus rules. That is, don't get excited about the fact that you may have a guardian angel. Get excited about the fact that Jesus rules the universe from heaven. 
You see, Acts chapter 12 teaches us three really great things. Let me tie this together with three points. The first one that Acts, first thing that Acts chapter 12 shows us is that nothing, no barrier can stop Jesus' kingdom from advancing. Not a religious zealot in Paul, not a racial divide between Jew and Gentile, not a despotic little king like Herod, not even an overexcited serving girl like Rhoda can stop the kingdom going forward. Jesus will rule. He'll rule from heaven and his enemies are going to be made a footstool for his feet. And in fact, we, we get a little bit of a taste of that in the second story in our passage, don't we? Because when Herod puffs himself up and puts himself in the place of God, he's judged. Have a look in Acts chapter 12, verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people, and they shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. You see, here is a little taste of Acts chapter 2. Every enemy is going to be made a footstool for Jesus' feet, and Herod, is just another enemy along the way. Jesus will judge the godless king. Jesus will judge the godless government, the godless authority. Sometimes, like Herod, it'll be before the end. But finally, every single enemy of Jesus will bow. Nothing can stop Jesus' kingdom from advancing. That's the first thing the passage teaches us. But the second thing the passage does is show us how Jesus' kingdom advances that it advances through his word, through his message. Now, we've seen that all the way through the book of Acts, haven't we? Jesus' kingdom has expanded and grown as the messengers of the gospel have taken the gospel to ever new groups of people. They started in Judea and went to Samaria and now to the very ends of the earth. And look how this passage finishes in verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. You see, that's how Jesus' kingdom advances. Herod, the great barrier, is removed and the word continues to spread and advance, which really helps us to see what it is that we want for Australia. Acts doesn't end with, and then God replaced Herod with a Christian, and then God replaced Herod with a Christian democracy and a prime minister. No, it ends with God sending his word out and spreading it and flourishing it. You see, God doesn't need Christian governments. God doesn't grow his kingdom through Christian democracies or political parties. God grows his kingdom through the gospel being preached. Friends, this is one of the big differences between Christianity and Islam. Islam sees Allah's kingdom of growing through human government. So the nation will become Muslim. So the official name of the country Pakistan is actually the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. 
because the kingdom of Allah grows through human governments so that they legislate for Islam and they run the country according to Quranic principles. And that's how uh, Islam grows. And so Muslims will actually seek to change a country's political system. But if you want Christianity to flourish in Australia, the answer is not in Canberra. No, the answer is you. The answer is you talking to your friend at work and, and his mate and, and his wife and their kids. And it's, it's all of the stories that we've been talking about being part of. That's how the kingdom of Jesus grows. As we preach the gospel to all of these people, Jesus' word spreads and flourishes. That is, we change hearts, not constitutions. Now, look, that's not to say that we abandon politics. It's not to say Christians will never get involved in politics. No, we can. Use your vote. You've got a vote in Australia, so use it for good. We can use our influence. We can limit evil and we can do some good. But the kingdom grows as Jesus conquers human hearts by the Holy Spirit. So preach the gospel. Pray for your friends. Invite them. Talk to them about it. And I promise you, you will have more influence than any political party ever can. You will change eternities that way. And the third thing this passage teaches us is, trust Jesus as you do it. Because this passage shows us that we can trust Jesus to look after his people, doesn't it? Don't you love the way that Jesus just protects his people all the way through this passage? Look at Peter's words in verse 11. He says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. You see, the same God who installs a sinful government can also protect his people under the reign of that sinful government. And so what we need to do is just trust our God and obey our God. And if God wants to save us from that sinful government, he can. He doesn't promise that he always will. But he can. No government can thwart God's plans. And so if, heaven forbid, our government should outlaw preaching the gospel, we know what we'd do, don't we? We would trust God. We'd serve his kingdom. We'd keep preaching the gospel. And when we were arrested, we'd confess. And then they'd send us to jail and we'd preach the gospel there. Because Jesus, our king, can be trusted. How great is Jesus? I'm going to pray to him now. Our great God, our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you are the one in ultimate authority. We praise you that you are never hampered by human authority, but you are the one who places human governments there. We pray that we would obey them, whether they're evil or not. We pray that we would obey them as far as we can. But when we're forced to make a choice between you and them, we pray that we would trust you Admit, uh, submit to you and obey you. Father, we thank you that at this point in Australia, we're not being called to disobey the government, that we can meet. That's a wonderful privilege. And we think of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who really are being forced to choose between you and their government. We ask that we might support them in prayer, that we might give them the money they need, that we might even go and help them we pray that we might shine a light on their cause when we can. But we pray that you would look after them too. 
We pray that you would give them the courage and the trust in you to stand firm. We pray for the spread of the gospel, the spread of Jesus' kingdom in our country. We thank you that just as no human prime minister could turn Australia into a Christian country, no human prime minister could stop the spread of the gospel in our country. We pray that you would bring hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people in Australia to come and love Jesus as their true king. And we pray that you do that in our region too. We really want to be part of people's stories of coming to find and love and obey and be saved by their king. We long to see Jesus' work growing and his word spreading and flourishing in New Ian Lake Mac and beyond. Amen.